Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. If you've spent any time in the legal tech hashtag world on social media, you've probably already encountered today's guest. And you probably already know that Colin Levy is not your typical lawyer. Shaped by his experience graduating law school during the tail end of the Great Recession, he has taken many twists and turns, from eschewing big law to finding an in-house job, and most recently taking on the role of legal tech evangelist at a contract lifecycle management startup. Through it all, one of his key takeaways was that a lack of technological aptitude in lawyers was limiting the growth and evolution of the profession. And he's dedicated himself to exploring and closing this gap by finding out what makes legal industry innovators tick through his blog, podcast, and social media. Tune in to today's conversation to learn more about Colin, his love of legal tech, and how he uses social media to create career opportunities for himself. Colin, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us on the podcast. It's my pleasure and honor to be a guest on this podcast. Well, we're delighted to talk. You're Director of Legal and Evangelist for Malbec. Tell us uh, a little bit about what Malbec is and what its mission is and what it does. Absolutely. Well, we uh, we do not make wine, uh, even <laughs> though our name... You've got a great is- name for that. You know that, right? <laughs> So um, we are a contract lifecycle management company. Uh, we make a software service solution that allows companies to work cross-functionally and manage their life cycles of their contracts from start to finish. So from you know just talking deal terms to negotiating to finalizing the agreement to implementing the terms and tracking various obligations associated with contracts. And being someone who has a lot of experience in my past as working in-house in transactional spaces, contracts are something that I know quite well, have a lot of experience with and certainly I'm familiar with the pain points associated with contract management. So it's fun to now be working for a company that seeks to address all those pain points that I had to manage for a number of years prior to joining Mulbeck. Talk to us a little bit about that journey, Colin. You you came out of law school in the heart of the Great Recession, and you've you've talked about some of the challenges that posed in terms of the path of your career. Talk to us a little bit about that journey. Absolutely. You know, sort of looking back, I did have a plan for how I anticipated my legal career to work. I went to law school thinking I would work in-house and that would be my my path. And I would just kind of be your, you know, normal in-house lawyer. I always liked contracts and transactions. So I kind of liked the, you know, the puzzle like nature of putting together a transaction. So that was my intention when I went to law school. But I also had this kind of little spark of interest in technology because in high school, I helped start a website consulting company before websites were a big thing. And then prior to law school, I worked for a big firm in New York creating electronic discovery databases. And that gave me a little bit of the flavor of technology and how it related to the practice of law. So I went through law school thinking there'd be more of that, there'd be a little more talk about that, which there was not of. That's a shocking development in law school that they weren't talking about technology at the time. This is in the middle of the of the aughts, right? Oh six, oh seven. Yeah, yeah. So before technology really became at least part of the curriculum. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there really was not a lot of talk about technology other than talking about kind of legal research tools like LexisNexis and Westlaw, which are sort of technologies, but not in the not in the sense that I tend to think about it. So following law school, you know, as you as you did mention, I graduated into the tail end of the Great Recession, and that definitely made finding a job quite a struggle for a couple of reasons. Number one, I knew it was going to be hard to begin with because I didn't want to work for a firm. So to find an in-house job with no experience, you know, I was kind of caught in a catch-22 because to get experience, you had to work, but you couldn't get experience if you didn't have a job. So I was trying to figure out, you know, how I could manage. And so what I ended up doing was I took on a number of different temporary roles that allowed me to work on refining some of the skills I needed to be a practicing attorney and parlayed those different experiences into sort of this portfolio, if you will, various experiences that then I used when applying for some other jobs. And eventually I got a job with a manufacturing company as a contracts administrator. And that job then became more uh, involved and more complex. And I was promoted to being contracts counsel. And that was my first kind of real exposure to the nature of in-house work. But at the same time, I still had this interest in technology and kind of you know, how it could help make my job and the jobs of other lawyers easier because, you know, I was managing a lot of different agreements, managing kind of different personalities, tracking different types of data. And it just was, it was a struggle for sure. So it's a pain point for a lot of in-house counsel, isn't it? It it truly is. This management of the flow of contracts. Yeah, it absolutely is. Because people tend to think of contracts as being fairly straightforward in terms of you write up the terms, you negotiate, you sign it, and that's it. Well, there's a lot more to it. There are a lot of little steps involved in each one of those milestones. And so, you know, I didn't know a lot about legal technology. So I figured the way that I could go about kind of learning more about this stuff was reaching out to those who were actually doing this work, either teaching about it or creating some of these products or thinking about creating some of these products. And so I just started reaching out to different individuals who were engaged in this type of work and learned from them about what was going on in the space to the point where I started sharing some of my learnings online on social media. And that helped kind of inspire me to continue on that journey. And as it turned out, inspired others to start their own journeys as well. So you said you weren't interested in working for a firm. That's an interesting, that's not a typical choice, I don't think, for law school graduates. I think many people go to law school assuming that they're going to work for some firm, big, small, whatever. What was it about the private practice that caused you to be disinterested in that as opposed to working for corporate counsel? It's, it's a more traditional path now, but certainly I don't think it was at that time. What was it about that led you to that choice? Yeah, so there were a couple of things. One is uh, I really had a mind for business and being involved in the operation of the business. So I figured, you know, working for a firm, there'd be kind of this separation from the business because I would have more than one client and there'd be a lot of things I'd be working on. I wouldn't really get to know each individual business as well as I would have liked. So there was that. The other component was, frankly, working for a big firm or even a firm in general and, you know, billing by the hour and kind of tracking my time and all of that, that just didn't really appeal to me. And I heard from friends who were older than I was working at firms and kind of the stress and not having much of a life and kind of all these other sacrifices that they made for the sake of working for these firms. And that just really didn't appeal to me. I just didn't want that kind of life. You know, mental health is something that's very important to me. And I, I often speak out about it. And so that was a concern as well was, you know, I wanted to make sure that whatever job I was having, whatever job I did was one that was good for how I worked 
probably wanted to work and for my mental health. And so that kind of led me down the path of looking at in-house positions because it would accomplish all those things that I just listed in terms of really being close to the business, working cross-functionally and working kind of, I wouldn't say more in a more relaxed style, but certainly in a environment where I wouldn't have to track every hour of every day. That is uh, something we learn. You didn't have to even go down that road. Many of us who went down the road learned to hate the tracking every six minutes. Part of that practice is is being very unpleasant. But yeah, let's 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 go back to what you said when you began to reach out to people to sort of learn how they were handling contracts management. How did you find resources to go talk to? Did you use social media? I'm not sure what time period we're talking about, but how did you find the people to talk to? Yeah, so this was during the 2010s. The way I went about it was all of the above. I went on social media to look for people who were talking about these issues. I went on websites and just Google legal tech to try to find more information, uh, which led me down to learning about various blogs and podcasts. So I just kind of continued to just read about the topic. And I found some books on the subject as well that I read. So I kind of took an all of the above approach to learning more about this space which has continued to grow and expand in influence and in sophistication and in kind of coverage over the years. And so I still have to stay on top of it because it continues to grow and it's not sort of monolithic. There are all these different subsectors of legal tech that all are interesting and all growing in different ways. Did I see you just spoke at Legal Week in New York? Yes, I did speak at Legal Week in New York. And what did you speak on? I assume contract management. So I spoke about contract management and about getting data out of your contracts and being able to kind of really make strategic data-driven decisions based off of your contracts in terms of how you negotiated them, in terms of what language you've used in different provisions, and in terms of how you've tracked various milestones and deadlines with agreements and what financial terms you've agreed to. So yeah, that's what I spoke on at Legal Week, and it was, it was a really fun, engaging conversation. How was it? I assume like most of us, you've been locked down a lot over the last couple of years. Were you in person at Legal Week? It was in person uh, and it was actually my first in-person event in a couple of years. And there were hundreds of people there and it was very exciting, very hectic, a bit frantic. And it was it was a lot of fun. I tend to be very outgoing. So it was really good to see people in person and connect with them and meet many of them for the first time in person who I'd spoken to through Zoom or other other means, but not had ever met in person. So it was definitely exciting and nerve wracking as well, just because thanks to the pandemic, you now kind of think a little bit more about those types of events, whereas in the past, you kind of didn't really think twice about attending any of those events. Uh, yeah, I wondered about that because it has been a couple of years since I've been to a big event like that. And it is interesting. It's a combination of excitement and nerve wracking, isn't it? Yeah, it really it really is. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly extroverted. So for me, it was a really good way to kind of get back into the groove of things, if you will. But um, at the same time, I also am a little bit of a germaphobe. So being around <laughs> a lot of these people uh, was certainly something that was a little... A little bit riddled with anxiety, but I got over it after I spent more time with everyone. And, and it was just, it was really just a great event. And the amount of enthusiasm and interest that there was in the space was really exciting to see. And like I said before, it was really great to meet a lot of folks who had reached out to me and I connected with virtually, but had never met in person. 
Did you walk away with sort of seeing any particular trends in the legal tech space or any overarching themes that you pulled up from Legal Week? Or was it such a diverse landscape that it's hard to pull out any particular overarching concepts? Yeah, so I think overall, it was certainly a diverse event. There was a bit of a focus on e-discovery, but I would say that one of the themes I pulled out was just the level of interest, not just in legal tech more generally, but in sort of how it can help align with how your department or your business works and the ways in which these tools can fit into your kind of existing tech ecosystem, if you will. And certainly that's something that I've seen come up time and time again as I've worked in the CLM space, because people want tools that don't require them to throw the existing tools they have. They want tools that will fit in with their existing set of tools and allow for good integration so that data can flow pretty seamlessly among the different tools that a company uses. Your talk was over CLM and data. And talk to us a little bit about the data side and how the use of data as an exhaust from the contract lifecycle management tools can help people make better decisions. Yeah. So one of the one of the important ways that I see data being allowed helping someone make better decisions is, you know, for example, you have an agreement and you have some language in there that is constantly causing issues in your negotiations because it's just a it's just a topic that comes up again and again and again, and people keep wanting to tweak it and insert other other language. And so, sales tools can allow you to sort of track things like that and, and show you how many times you negotiated a certain provision and how you have negotiated that provision in terms of what language you've used, how often it's been successful in reaching an agreement between the parties. And that's the type of data. That's one example of a data point that can be very useful in helping you formulate a strategy moving forward for conducting your contract negotiations and structuring your agreement so that you can improve deal cycle times and allow for sort of a quicker transaction overall, because that's another sort of pressure, I think, that a lot of businesses face right now is they want to constantly grow. And one impediment to growth sometimes can be the deal cycle in terms of how long it gets from a deal from start to close. And so tracking sort of data points like the one I mentioned with regards to a certain clause and how long it takes to negotiate and what backup or compromise language you use can be really helpful in formulating a strategy to move forward. Another data point that can be very helpful is looking at sort of the payment terms and financial terms of an agreement and see, all right, well, you know, we typically, you know, have agreed to, you know, quarterly billing, but it's impacting sort of ability to recognize revenue in this way. So maybe we want to move to some other way of billing. And you can see how sort of things play out over time through collecting that data and visualizing that data through these tools. So one of the things typical of lawyers is they love to wordsmith documents, going back to your first point. Have you seen any ability to look at what the liability being caught? You talk about negotiating terms and cycle time for negotiating terms. Is there any way to tell how significant those language changes are, either in deal terms or ultimate exposure execution on the contract so that people can say, I love to negotiate this term, but only the lawyers care about it. It's never come into effect. Is there any movement in that direction in the industry? Yeah, certainly that is something that is becoming more and more, I think, uh, priority is sort of tracking sort of the actual 
sort of implementation or actual kind of call out some of these provisions in terms of, well, that never comes up, so we don't need to worry about it. But this comes up all the time, so we should spend more time on that. That is certainly a priority for sure. You know, as as you kind of alluded to, I, I think that sometimes lawyers, and because they've been taught to think this way, worry about every little single thing. And, you know, honestly, you know, maybe this is my bias as in-house counsel, but you kind of have to pick your battles and, and think about which ones are actually worth fighting over. And which provisions, you know, may seem risky in one context, but in your context, in your line of business is not that important. Because, you know, if, if you're going to be fighting over every single provision every single time, you're really not going to make much progress and you're going to be a drain on the business. And you're also, frankly, not going to be you're going to not sort of embed yourself in the business because people won't want to work with you because they'll know that you'll just constantly be calling out every single provision. Whereas if you could just simply say, yeah, okay, those things I'm okay with. This, though, I think we need to focus on and worry about, and here's why, be able to have data to back up your rationale. That's a good way of allowing yourself to become more trusted as a business partner and more embedded within the business itself. Which is, I assume, an important goal for in-house counsel, certainly the folks I've talked to. They want to be better business partners and strategic advisors to the business stakeholders as opposed to just the lawyer negotiating all the terms. sounds like this is an important tool to help move in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. It really is because something I I take pride in and something that's been very important has been being seen as a business partner and as a valuable team member of the business. Because for a long time, I think, and I was kind of of viewed as sort of, you know, in their own little silo and you kind of just had to run things through legal because that was just how you just needed to get things done, but you knew it was going to be a hassle. And I never really wanted to be seen that way or be seen as a cost center. I really wanted to be seen as a value add and as a business partner and a, and a value team member. And the way you do that is through aligning how you work and how you think about things with the business, which doesn't mean just simply give in on everything, but rather it means viewing things through this pragmatic sort of data-driven lens and using those insights to drive how you think about things and how you move forward. Because at the end of the day, the business is going to move forward one way or another with or without you. And so it's your job to kind of keep up with the business while still doing your job as a lawyer. How does that translate into the skill set you're looking for for your outside providers? This is a mindset that outside providers don't always have. Uh, Some do. How does this change how you buy the delivery of legal services? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, I look at a couple of things. One is when I'm talking to outside counsel, do they have a good understanding of, of the business? Do they have a good understanding of kind of what it is that I'm doing, what it is that I'm trying to achieve? And can they explain sort of potential roadblocks and workarounds in language I can understand? I get it. I'm a lawyer talking to another lawyer, but I want things in plain language so that I can then explain things to my business because my business people are not going to want me to explain things in legalese. It just, it's not going to work very well. And I'm going to be seen as someone who speaks in obtuse ways and isn't really contributing. So that's one thing. Another thing I look for is their level of sort of tech acumen, not meaning that they need to be some kind of coder, but rather are they aware of tools that exist that can help them do their jobs better? And that can in turn perhaps save time and money in terms of my expense, because I know how a lot of these this work gets done. I just don't have the expertise to get it done. So my expectation would be that their expertise combined with them using the appropriate tools to get it done will result in a good outcome that's both pragmatic and cost effective. So that's another thing that I look for. 
And granted, that could be tough to find still because there are a lot of firms that kind of just rely on their reputation and, and kind of their level of expertise. And as far as I'm concerned, expertise is a must-have, but it's not the only must-have. It's uh, table stakes, isn't it? Exactly. You, you assume the expertise, but what else do you bring to the table? Precisely. Yeah. One of the things you've done that I follow and I find interesting is you've been very astute about using social media as part of building your name, your own personal brand. How has that played into your career and your career choices? And how have you thought through whether it's your blog or the Twitter feed or LinkedIn or all of these other aspects? How have you sort of thought that through? Yeah. So, you know, initially I used social media as a means of just simply learning from others and connecting with others about their ideas. But I've since learned how to use all these different platforms as a means of, as you alluded to, building out my brand, but also, frankly, creating opportunities for myself. And I've been able to do that through, I think, a number of different ways. One is being outspoken about certain issues, being very clear about how I feel about things and sharing lessons that I've learned and wanting to encourage others to share their own lessons as well in hopes of building a broader community and inspiring others. In addition, I also kind of view social media as, a, as another way of sharing ideas and another way of kind of just connecting with others in a way that you can't connect Otherwise, you know, for example, perhaps they're in different countries or different states or what have you, and you can't just kind of grab a beer with them or what have you. So that's that's another, I think, useful way to think about social media. When I first started using social media, I certainly didn't expect that it would open up the kinds of opportunities that it has with respect to kind of my career. For example, you know, I've been invited to participate, meaning being a guest on various podcasts, including this one. I've been asked to speak at Legal Week and other conferences, participate on webinars. And all of that has been the result of, I think, a number of things. One is my openly sharing of knowledge and, and lessons that I've learned. Two, being very encouraging and supportive of others. And three, being willing to connect and help others. Because I think it's one thing to kind of just share ideas, but I think you sometimes to really open doors, you have to be willing to share generously of yourself with others and build those kinds of connections and build relationships with others. And that's something that I found is facilitated by the use of social media. And frankly, I found my job with Molbeck in part because of my brand that I've built through social media. You know, the evangelist part of my role really is to sort of assist with marketing sales efforts on the part of Molbeck. But using my network and using my brand, really, which I'm perfectly willing to do because I'm allowed to continue to build my brand while engaging in that work. And social media really has been the key to opening that door. I really, really encourage everyone to be more engaging on social media. I realize that every platform is a little bit different and sometimes can be a little overwhelming. But I also think at the same time, it can be a very exciting area to engage in because there's so much excitement out there. There's so many people that are interested in things and that are active on social media and that you can connect with and learn from. And you never know when that next door, next opportunity might appear before you. How do you manage the, the time demands on you between your paying job, your social media, your speaking engagements? Because what you described makes a tremendous amount of sense, but it requires time and it requires focus. How do you budget that? Do you set aside a certain amount each day that you're going to focus on social media or has it become so ingrained in the way you manage your workday that it just flows naturally? 
So at this point, it just flows naturally. However, I would say that it's it's not always easy, and there certainly are a lot of demands on my time. So what I'm finding more and more I need to do is kind of set aside time, usually right when I get up in the morning, to focus on, you know, creating posts on LinkedIn, perhaps sending out a tweet, checking on my Facebook page, and, and so on. And then kind of just periodically during the day, checking in and retweeting or commenting on things that may pop up, perhaps when I'm taking a lunch break or taking some other break. So I kind of do it in a structured way that works with my schedule, but it it sometimes is not easy. And and certainly when it comes to speaking at conferences and webinars, uh, that definitely takes work because I have to make sure that I'm balancing sort of the demands of that with my job. And thankfully, I have a job that allows for me to participate in those kinds of things because it's a win-win for me and for my company as well. So it works out quite well. And honestly, it was a struggle before I had this job to kind of find that balance because other roles I've had didn't quite see the value in some of that other work I was doing, which was hard to kind of reconcile with the work I was doing and being paid for. So, you know, I'm really grateful and humbled to have the job I now have that allows me to kind of do all of this stuff that I love to do and also get paid for it. That's uh, it's the perfect scenario, isn't it? So one of your more recent ones I ran across is the uh, audio show with Anna Lazinski on the Clubhouse app called Today's Legal Tech Landscape. Tell us a little bit about that. What are you trying to accomplish and sort of how do people find it? Yeah, absolutely. So Clubhouse is a audio-only app available on through use of your phone, Apple and Android. And so really, you know, the purpose of that sort of initiative is to help engage with people on the topic of legal tech from the sense of, you know, our first room was focused on just understanding what the landscape looks like today. We're going to do another session next week talking about sort of the legal sales relationship, which sometimes can be a little strained in-house. And really the goal of this whole thing is to just get, grow the community of people interested in legal tech and get people to understand that legal tech is not just about technology or the law. It's really about the relationship between the two. And it's about kind of enabling and building this culture that is aimed at delivering legal services better aligned to the needs of consumers of legal services. And that is really facilitated through technology. And it doesn't mean you need to kind of learn how to code or be some kind of tech savant. It really is more about just kind of understand the landscape and this sort of recognition that technology plays an important role in our lives. And accordingly, we should recognize that role that it plays and be cognizant of how it can help us and also the danger it sometimes can pose as well. And I think that's an important component to keep in mind. Absolutely. It, It sounds like a great venture. Why the Clubhouse app? Why that medium of distribution? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for us, for Molbeck and for Anna and I, it was, you know, Anna and I both used the app primarily for fun, but for Molbeck, it really was, which is sponsoring the initiative, really was a unique platform that not a lot of other companies are on and using. And we thought it'd be fun to give it a try because we always like to kind of be unique and do something that others aren't doing. And so it really has turned out to be kind of a fun and productive experiment, if you will. Uh, and that's something I really appreciate. And it's just fun because you you can engage in conversation with people from all walks of life, who all have an interest, and it kind of is borderless. And so you can connect with people from around the globe, and it's really quite fun and easy to use and be engaged in. Oh, that's great. I, lo- I look forward to being part of that. So let's, let's talk about Malbec just a little bit more in the time we've got left. It's not the only company in the contract lifecycle management. 
I saw, by the way, congratulations, you in the last few months got a nice round of financing to help accelerate your growth. What's the differentiator that Malbec offers from the other providers out there? Absolutely. I think there are three things. One is our interface is very intuitive. It's very simple. It's very easy to use. I've used other tools before. I've even helped with developing a proprietary one before. And this one is just, you know, you pick it up very quickly. It makes sense in terms of where everything is. And it just is very easy to get up to speed. So that, I think, makes it really unique and helpful because there often is a fear of using a new tool and engaging in that learning curve. And think with Malbec, that learning curve is not that steep or as steep as it could otherwise be. So that's one. Two is we have a very strong focus on cross-functional enablement, meaning that, you know, the platform is really aimed at not just lawyers or legal professionals, but at all these different functions, finance, sales, IT, privacy people, all of them can all engage in this platform seamlessly, work together on the same matter asynchronously and be able to kind of understand who's doing what and what the status of something is. So that is really, really incredibly helpful. And then lastly, as I mentioned kind of earlier, with regards to kind of having a tool work within your existing tech stack, that's something we take very seriously. You know, our tool has a number of different connections that we can make with other tools like HubSpot or Salesforce. So there's seamless data flow between those tools and ours. And that allows for, I think, a seamless experience and one that doesn't require having to tweak your other tools to work with this tool. And that's something that a lot of businesses really want to have because they don't want to, again, have to reinvent or tweak their existing tech tools. They want to just add this one to their stack and be able to move forward from there. And with the financing round, what new capabilities to the extent you're able to share are you looking to bring to market? Absolutely. Well, to the extent I'm able to share, you know, we're certainly working on making our existing kind of tool set better and also working on, you know, we we have AI that is very powerful at this point, but we're always looking to make it even more powerful and make it even more able to do what people want in terms of being able to review contracts automatically and, and pick out things. So those are things we're working on. We're really happy where we are, but we also know that there is always more improvements we need. So we're always working to improve. And, and that comes through feedback after customers. You know, one thing we really take pride in want and gave a lot of attention to is the feedback of those customers that use our product, because we really want to hear from them, hear what they want and be able to meet the needs. Uh, That's fabulous. Well, Colin, we're, we're out of time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the conversation and your insights. Thank you for making time. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And we'll put in the show notes uh, links to your website, which is colinslevy.com and to Malbec and if we put all of your social media, they'd be long show notes, but we'll put Twitter feeds and, this, and et cetera in there for folks wanting to find you. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.